The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Viewed through one lens, the Victorian age was an era of scientific discovery and rational thinking, as exemplified by Charles Darwin, whose commitment to facts and evidence led him to publish his theory of evolution by natural selection. The disenchantment of the world, as Max Weber put it. Viewed through another lens, the Victorian age was an era of faith and religion, as Darwin himself recognized when he delayed publishing his work for fear of the spiritual crisis it might provoke. And somewhere in the middle, perhaps, residing within this tension, was a great rise of belief in the supernatural, the occult, phenomena like mesmerism and mediums communing with the dead, re-enchanting a world on its march toward disenchanting. Author Mary Elizabeth Braddon knew how to tap into a marketplace's needs and wants. She did so with several ghost stories perfect for the day. We'll have her story and one of her stories today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. No listener emails today. Let's go straight at them. A Mary, uh, Mary, a uh, Mary, Mary, a Mary. I got, <laughs> should I just start over? Oh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Not very well known to us today, but a household name in her own time, or close to it at least, a very popular writer in that age of reading. We'll hear about who she was, and then we'll hear Evelyn's Visitant, one of her stories. Lots to cover, so let's take our first break, first of two, and then return with Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we got that out of the way. The early 1860s in America were, of course, dominated by war, civil war. In England, they were dominated by novels. Anthony Trollope, George Eliot, Wilkie Collins, Charles Dickens, all were putting out some of their greatest works, all in the span of a few short years. And they weren't just landing like a thunk on a particular date, here today, gone tomorrow, but they were spread out over weeks and months. 
through the form of serialization. Readers could open one publication and read the latest from The Mill on the Floss, George Eliot's exploration of religion and philosophy and social issues. Finish that and open up Wilkie Collins's Mystery, The Woman in White, or a great realistic novel by Anthony Trollope, or the latest installment of Charles Dickens's Great Expectations, which some people consider his most readable work. I tend to agree. It's the one I propose to anyone who asks me where to start with Dickens. If the Elizabethan age was the age of Shakespearean drama, the Victorian era was the age of the prose novel. Enter Mary Elizabeth Braddon, born in Soho in 1835. Sorry, She worked as an actress before turning to writing to support herself and her mother. She translated works from the French, and she had impeccable taste, revering authors like Balzac and Dumas and Flaubert. And she found the magic in her own writing with her novel of 1862, Lady Audley's Secret, through which she became a publishing sensation. The novel follows some well-publicized legal cases. That's another form of serialized narrative that the Victorians gobbled up in their newspapers and periodicals. And it featured a plot device then in vogue, accidental bigamy, just kind of like spontaneous combustion. Sort of funny to see it popping up so often in these books. And it dates the narratives like synths in 80s pop music. It's curious now, and we smile a bit, but you know it was probably breathtaking at the time. Nothing got my pulse pumping like those synthesizers. What happens in Lady Audley's secret? Well, the heroine is married twice. She pushes her first husband down a well. She considers poisoning her second husband, and finally she sets fire to a hotel. It reverses the Victorian desire for a calm and tranquil domestic sphere. Here, the seemingly perfect domestic woman, a true lady, is actually a violent criminal who commits bigamy and abandons her child and attempts murder. It's a story about gender and class and madness and shocking crimes. It's never been out of print. Braddon was launched. She went on to produce something like 85 books famous for their inventive plots and advanced way of thinking about the internal and external lives of women. She founded a magazine of her own, filling its pages with sensation novels, travel narratives, essays, and historical and supernatural fiction. She also had a bigamy scandal of her own. A publisher of periodicals named John Maxwell fell in love with her. That's, that's kind, of, it's kind of funny that a publisher fell in love with someone who could crank out pages like Mary Elizabeth Brad, and it's kind of like those cartoons where the chicken hawk looks at Foghorn Leghorn and sees a roast chicken in his mind. One imagines him gazing at Mary Elizabeth and seeing pages upon pages of gripping prose flowing out of her fingers. I love your column inches, my dear. I mean your eyes. What did, what did I say? <laughs> but maybe there was true love there. Who am I to speculate at this remote distance? In any case, his problem was that he was married to someone else, a problem he solved or addressed by sending his wife to live with her family, moving in with Mary Elizabeth, bringing along his five children from his first marriage or his, 
his real marriage, I should say, telling the world that he and Mary Elizabeth were actually married and having six more children with her. When the truth was exposed by his first wife's brother-in-law, Maxwell and Braddon's servants resigned in protest. Well, how much moral outrage do you need to feel to resign from a household with 11 children running around, I would guess? Not very much. Braddon has a special position in Victorian literature, what we might think of as a combination of high and low brow, and in the parlance of the day, making kitchen literature the literature of the drawing room. She seems not to have worried too much about being popular. When the public expressed its taste for ghost stories, she was happy to plunge in. We're going to hear one such story in a moment. She was often ill, but she lived a long life. She made it well into the 20th century. She bought a car. She saw the filmed versions of some of her early novels. She helped hospital patients in World War I. An essayist writing in The Academy put her legacy and influence and impact this way, quote, Miss Braddon is a part of England. She has woven herself into it. Without her, it would be different. This is no mere fanciful conceit. She is in the encyclopedias. She ought to be in the dictionaries. End quote. Well, she, she certainly deserves a spot in the History of Literature podcast. First, with this story timed for October and Halloween month. And secondly, later in, I think, December, we're going to hear her name come up again when our guest, Anna Beer, who's written a book about underknown women writers, is going to tell us about a number of women writers who have been undeservedly overlooked. But for now, let's not underlook or overlook, but just look, or I guess listen, as we hear a Victorian ghost story from a master storyteller, Evelyn's Visitant, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, after this. Evelyn's Visitant by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. It was at a masked ball at the Palais Royale that my fatal quarrel with my first cousin, André de Brissac, began. The quarrel was about a woman. The women who followed the footsteps of Philip of Orléans were the causes of many such disputes, and there was scarcely one fair head in all that glittering throng which, to a man versed in social histories and mysteries, might not have seemed bedabbled with blood. I shall not record the name of her for love of whom André de Brissac and I crossed one of the bridges in the dim August dawn on our way to the waste ground beyond the church of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. There were many beautiful vipers in those days, and she was one of them. I can feel the chill breath of that August morning blowing in my face, as I sit in my dismal chamber at my chateau of Pouet Verdun tonight, alone in the stillness, writing the strange story of my life, I can see the white mist rising from the river, the grim outline of the Chatelet, and the square towers of Notre Dame black against the pale gray sky. Even more vividly can I recall André's fair young face as he stood opposite to me with his two friends, scoundrels both, and alike eager for that unnatural fray. 
We were a strange group to be seen in a summer sunrise, all of us fresh from the heat and clamor of the Regent's saloons. Andre in a quaint hunting dress copied from a family portrait at Poe Verdun. I costumed as one of Law's Mississippi Indians. The other men in like garish frippery, adorned with broideries and jewels that looked wan in the pale light of dawn. Our quarrel had been a fierce one, a quarrel which could have but one result, and that the direst. I had struck him, and the welt raised by my open hand was crimson upon his fair, womanish face as he stood opposite to me. The eastern sun shone on the face presently, and dyed the cruel mark with a deeper red. But the sting of my own wrongs was fresh, and I had not yet learned to despise myself for that brutal outrage. To André de Brissac, such an insult was most terrible. He was the favorite of fortune, the favorite of women, and I was nothing, a rough soldier who had done my country good service, but in the boudoir of a parabere, a mannerless boor. We fought, and I wounded him mortally. Life had been very sweet for him, and I think that a frenzy of despair took possession of him when he felt the lifeblood ebbing away. He beckoned me to him as he lay on the ground. I went and knelt at his side. Forgive me, André, I murmured. He took no more heed of my words than if that piteous entreaty had been the idle ripple of the river near at hand. Listen to me, Hector de Bersac, he said. I am not one who believes that a man has done with earth because his eyes glaze and his jaw stiffens. They will bury me in the old vault at Poiverdun, and you will be master of the chateau. Ah, I know how lightly they take things in these days, and how Dubois will laugh when he hears that Sa has been killed in a duel. They will bury me and sing masses for my soul, but you and I have not finished our affair yet, my cousin. I will be with you when you least look to see me. I, with this ugly scar upon the face that women have praised and loved, I will come to you when your life seems brightest. I will come between you and all that you hold fairest and dearest. My ghostly hand shall drop a poison in your cup of joy. My shadowy form shall shut the sunlight from your life. Men with such iron will as mine can do what they please, Hector de Brissac. It is my will to haunt you when I am dead. All this in short, broken sentences he whispered into my ear. I had need to bend my ear close to his dying lips, but the iron will of André de Brissac was strong enough to do battle with death, and I believe he said all he wished to say before his head fell back upon the velvet cloak they had spread beneath him, never to be lifted again. As he lay there you would have fancied him a fragile stripling, too fair and frail for the struggle called life. But there are those who remember the brief manhood of André de Brissac and who can bear witness to the terrible force of that proud nature. I stood looking down at the young face with that foul mark upon it, and God knows I was sorry for what I had done. Of those blasphemous threats which he had whispered in my ear, I took no heed. I was a soldier and a believer, 
There was nothing absolutely dreadful to me in the thought that I had killed this man. I had killed many men on the battlefield, and this one had done me cruel wrong. My friends would have had me cross the frontier to escape the consequences of my act, but I was ready to face those consequences, and I remained in France. I kept aloof from the court and received a hint that I had best confine myself to my own province. Many masses were chanted in the little chapel of Poiverdun for the soul of my dead cousin, and his coffin filled a niche in the vault of our ancestors. His death had made me a rich man, and the thought that it was so made my newly acquired wealth very hateful to me. I lived a lonely existence in the old chateau, where I rarely held converse with any but the servants of the household, all of whom had served my cousin, and none of whom liked me. It was a hard and bitter life. It galled me when I rode through the village to see the peasant children shrink away from me. I have seen old women cross themselves stealthily as I passed them by. Strange reports had gone forth about me, and there were those who whispered that I had given my soul to the evil one as the price of my cousin's heritage. From my boyhood I had been dark of visage and stern of manner, and hence, perhaps, no woman's love had ever been mine. I remembered my mother's face in all its changes of expression, but I can remember no look of affection that ever shone on me. That other woman, beneath whose feet I laid my heart, was pleased to accept my homage, but she never loved me, and the end was treachery. I had grown hateful to myself, and had well nigh begun to hate my fellow creatures, when a feverish desire seized upon me, and I pined to be back in the press and throng of the busy world once again. I went back to Paris, where I kept myself aloof from the court, and where an angel took compassion upon me. She was the daughter of an old comrade, a man whose merits had been neglected, whose achievements had been ignored, and who sulked in his shabby lodging like a rat in a hole, while all Paris went mad with the Scotch financier. And gentlemen and lackeys were trampling one another to death in the Rue Cancompois. The only child of this little cross-grained old captain of dragoons was an incarnate sunbeam, whose mortal name was Evelyn du Chalet. She loved me. The richest blessings of our lives are often those which cost us least. I wasted the best years of my youth in the worship of a wicked woman who jilted and cheated me at last. I gave this meek angel but a few courteous words, a little fraternal tenderness, and lo, she loved me. The life which had been so dark and desolate grew bright beneath her influence, and I went back to Poiverdon with a fair young bride for my companion. 
Ah, how sweet a change there was in my life and in my home. The village children no longer shrank appalled as the dark horsemen rode by. The village crones no longer crossed themselves, for a woman rode by his side, a woman whose charities had won the love of all those ignorant creatures and whose companionship had transformed the gloomy lord of the chateau into a loving husband and a gentle master. The old retainers forgot the untimely fate of my cousin and served me with cordial willingness for love of their young mistress. There are no words which can tell the pure and perfect happiness of that time. I felt like a traveler who had traversed the frozen seas of an Arctic region, remote from human love or human companionship, to find himself on a sudden in the bosom of a verdant valley, in the sweet atmosphere of home. The change seemed too bright to be real, and I strove in vain to put away from my mind the vague suspicion that my new life was but some fantastic dream. So brief were those halcyon hours that, looking back on them now, it is scarcely strange if I am still half inclined to fancy the first days of my married life could have been no more than a dream. Neither in my days of gloom nor in my days of happiness had I been troubled by the recollection of André's blasphemous oath. The words which with his last breath he had whispered in my ear were vain and meaningless to me. He had vented his rage in those idle threats, as he might have vented it in idle execrations. That he will haunt the footsteps of his enemy after death is the one revenge which a dying man can promise himself, and if men had power thus to avenge themselves, the earth would be peopled with phantoms. I had lived for three years at Poiverdon, sitting alone in the solemn midnight by the hearth where he had sat, pacing the corridors that had echoed his footfall, and in all that time my fancy had never so played me false as to shape the shadow of the dead. Is it strange, then, if I had forgotten André's horrible promise? There was no portrait of my cousin at Poiverdon. It was the age of boudoir art, and a miniature set in the lid of a gold bonbonniere or hidden artfully in a massive bracelet was more fashionable than a clumsy life-size image fit only to hang on the gloomy walls of a provincial chateau rarely visited by its owner. My cousin's fair face had adorned more than one bonbonniere and had been concealed in more than one bracelet, but it was not among the faces that looked down from the paneled walls of Poiverdon. In the library I found a picture which awoke painful associations. It was the portrait of a de Brissac, who had flourished in the time of Francis I, and it was from this picture that my cousin André had copied the quaint hunting dress he wore at the Regent's Ball. The library was a room in which I spent a good deal of my life, and I ordered a curtain to be hung before this picture. We had been married three months when Evelyn one day asked, Who is the lord of the chateau nearest to this? I looked at her in astonishment. My dearest, I answered, Do you not know that there is no other chateau within forty miles of Boiverdon? Indeed, she said, that is strange. I asked her why the fact seemed strange to her, 
and after much entreaty, I obtained from her the reason of her surprise. In her walks about the park and woods during the last month, she had met a man who, by his dress and bearing, was obviously of noble rank. She had imagined that he occupied some chateau near at hand, and that his estate adjoined ours. I was at a loss to imagine who this stranger could be, for my estate of Poiverdun lay in the heart of a desolate region, and unless when some traveler's coach went lumbering and jingling through the village, one had little more chance of encountering a gentleman than of meeting a demigod. Have you seen this man often, Evelyn? I asked. She answered in a tone which had a touch of sadness. I see him every day. Where, dearest? Sometimes in the park, sometimes in the wood. You know the little cascade, Hector, where there is some old neglected rockwork that forms a kind of cavern. I have taken a fancy to that spot and have spent many mornings there reading. Of late I have seen the stranger there every morning. He has never dared to address you? Never. I have looked up from my book and have seen him standing at a little distance, watching me silently. I have continued reading, and when I have raised my eyes again I have found him gone. He must approach and depart with a stealthy tread, for I never hear his footfall. Sometimes I have almost wished that he would speak to me. It is so terrible to see him standing silently there. He is some insolent peasant who seeks to frighten you. My wife shook her head. He is no peasant, she answered. It is not by his dress alone, I judge, for that is strange to me. He has an air of nobility, which it is impossible to mistake. Is he young or old? He is young and handsome. I was much disturbed by the idea of this stranger's intrusion on my wife's solitude, and I went straight to the village to inquire if any stranger had been seen there. I could hear of no one. I questioned the servants closely, but without result. Then I determined to accompany my wife in her walks, and to judge for myself of the rank of the stranger." For a week I devoted all my mornings to rustic rambles with Evelyn in the park and woods, and in all that week we saw no one but an occasional peasant in Cebu, or one of our own household returning from a neighboring farm. I was a man of studious habits, and those summer rambles disturbed the even current of my life. My wife perceived this, and entreated me to trouble myself no further. I will spend my mornings in the plaisance, Hector, she said. The stranger cannot intrude upon me there. I begin to think the stranger is only a phantasm of your own romantic brain, I replied, smiling at the earnest face lifted to mine. A chatelaine who is always reading romances may well meet some handsome cavaliers in the woodlands. I dare say I have Mademoiselle Scuderi to thank for this noble stranger, and that he is only the great Cyrus in modern costume. Ah, that is the point which mystifies me, Hector, she said. The stranger's costume is not modern. He looks as an old picture might look if it could descend from its frame. Her words pained me for they reminded me of that hidden picture in the library and the quaint hunting costume of orange and purple which André de Brissac wore at the Regent's Ball.
After this, my wife confined her walks to the plaisance, and for many weeks I heard no more of the nameless stranger. I dismissed all thought of him from my mind, for a graver and heavier care had come upon me. My wife's health began to droop. The change in her was so gradual as to be almost imperceptible to those who watched her day by day. It was only when she put on a rich gala dress, which she had not worn for months, that I saw how wasted the form must be on which the embroidered bodice hung so loosely, and how wan and dim were the eyes, which had once been brilliant as the jewels she wore in her hair. I sent a messenger to Paris to summon one of the court physicians, but I knew that many days must needs elapse before he could arrive at Poiverdon. In the interval, I watched my wife with unutterable fear. It was not her health only that had declined. The change was more painful to behold than any physical alteration. The bright and sunny spirit had vanished, and in the place of my joyous young bride, I beheld a woman weighed down by rooted melancholy. In vain I sought to fathom the cause of my darling's sadness. She assured me that she had no reason for sorrow or discontent, and that if she seemed sad without a motive, I must forgive her sadness and consider it as a misfortune rather than a fault. I told her that the court physician would speedily find some cure for her despondency, which must needs arise from physical causes, since she had no real ground for sorrow. But although she said nothing, I could see she had no hope or belief in the healing powers of medicine. One day, when I wished to beguile her from that pensive silence in which she was wont to sit an hour at a time, I told her, laughing, that she appeared to have forgotten her mysterious cavalier of the wood, and it seemed also as if he had forgotten her. To my wonderment, her pale face became of a sudden crimson and from crimson changed to pale again in a breath. "'You have never seen him since you deserted your woodland grotto?' I said. She turned to me with a heart-rending look. "'Hector!' she cried. "'I see him every day, and it is that which is killing me.' She burst into a passion of tears when she had said this. I took her in my arms as if she had been a frightened child." and tried to comfort her. "'My darling, this is madness,' I said. "'You know that no stranger can come to you in the plaisance. "'The moat is ten feet wide and always full of water, "'and the gates are kept locked day and night by old Massou. "'The chatelaine of a medieval fortress "'need fear no intruder in her antique garden.' "'My wife shook her head sadly. "'I see him every day.' she said. On this I believed that my wife was mad. I shrank from questioning her more closely concerning her mysterious visitant. It would be ill, I thought, to give a form and substance to the shadow that tormented her by too close inquiry about its look and manner, its coming and going. I took care to assure myself that no stranger to the household could by any possibility penetrate to the plaisance. Having done this, I was fain to await the coming of the physician. He came at last. 
I revealed to him the conviction which was my misery. I told him that I believed my wife to be mad. He saw her, spent an hour alone with her, and then came to me. To my unspeakable relief, he assured me of her sanity. It is just possible that she may be affected by one delusion, he said, but she is so reasonable upon all other points that I can scarcely bring myself to believe her the subject of a monomania. I am rather inclined to think that she really sees the person of whom she speaks. She described him to me with a perfect minuteness. The descriptions of scenes or individuals given by patients afflicted with monomania are always more or less disjointed, but your wife spoke to me as clearly and calmly as I am now speaking to you. Are you sure there is no one who can approach her in that garden where she walks? I am quite sure. Is there any kinsman of your steward or hanger-on of your household, a young man with a fair womanish face, very pale and rendered remarkable by a crimson scar which looks like the mark of a blow? My God! I cried as the light broke in upon me all at once. And the dress, the strange old-fashioned dress? The man wears a hunting costume of purple and orange, answered the doctor. I knew then that André de Brissac had kept his word, and that in the hour when my life was brightest, his shadow had come between me and happiness. I showed my wife the picture in the library, for I would fain assure myself that there was some error in my fancy about my cousin. She shook like a leaf when she beheld it, and clung to me convulsively. This is witchcraft, Hector, she said. The dress in that picture is the dress of the man I see in the plaisance, but the face is not his. Then she described to me the face of the stranger, and it was my cousin's face, line for line, André de Brissac, whom she had never seen in the flesh. Most vividly of all did she describe the cruel mark upon his face, the trace of a fierce blow from an open hand. After this, I carried my wife away from Poiverdon. We wandered far through the southern provinces and into the very heart of Switzerland. I thought to distance the ghastly phantom, and I fondly hoped that change of scene would bring peace to my wife. It was not so. Go where we would, the ghost of André de Brissac followed us. To my eyes, that fatal shadow never revealed itself. That would have been too poor a vengeance. It was my wife's innocent heart which André made the instrument of his revenge. The unholy presence destroyed her life. My constant companionship could not shield her from the horrible intruder. In vain did I watch her. In vain did I strive to comfort her. He will not let me be at peace, she said. He comes between us, Hector. He is standing between us now. I can see his face with the red mark upon it plainer than I see yours. One fair moonlit night, when we were together in a mountain village, my wife cast herself at my feet and told me she was the worst and vilest of women. I have confessed all to my director, she said. From the first I have not hidden my sin from heaven. 
but I feel that death is near me, and before I die, I would fain reveal my sin to you. What sin, my sweet one? When first the stranger came to me in the forest, his presence bewildered and distressed me, and I shrank from him as from something strange and terrible. He came again and again. By and by I found myself thinking of him and watching for his coming. His image haunted me perpetually. I strove in vain to shut his face out of my mind. Then followed an interval in which I did not see him, and to my shame and anguish I found that life seemed dreary and desolate without him. After that came the time in which he haunted the plaisance, and, oh, Hector, kill me if you will, for I deserve no mercy at your hands. I grew in those days to count the hours that must elapse before his coming, to take no pleasure save in the sight of that pale face with the red brand upon it. He plucked all old familiar joys out of my heart and left in it but one weird unholy pleasure, the delight of his presence. For a year I have lived but to see him, and now curse me, Hector, for this is my sin, whether it comes of the baseness of my own heart or is the work of witchcraft I know not, but I know that I have striven against this wickedness in vain. I took my wife to my breast and forgave her. In sooth, what had I to forgive? Was the fatality that overshadowed us any work of hers? On the next night she died with her hand in mine. And at the very last she told me, sobbing and affrighted, that he was by her side. Mm, okay. <laughs> Creeped out? I am a little. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Two picks by producer Emma this month in honor of October, a.k.a. Halloween month, Emma likes ghost stories and Edgar Allan Poe. It seems maybe we'll get another ghost story for Christmas in two months' time. In November, I'm not sure, maybe a little Sarah Orne Jewett. We're going to have some Hemingway in 2023, by the way, so that's something to look forward to. Speaking of which, speaking of looking forward, we have some good episodes on the calendar. Gustave Flaubert will be coming soon, and Shelley's Mature Years, and Rabindranath Tagore... And I'm trying to sneak some Maya Angelou onto the list. We'll have her soon. And the guests are going to start coming fast and furious, people. All these writers trying to squeeze themselves into the History of Literature podcast before the holiday gift-giving season, hoping that you will buy their books and give them as gifts. But giving us the gift of their presents. Or the presents of their gifts. If you are a good speller and can follow along, Orally, as I would hope you can, given that this is pretty much an oral medium. Oral, O-R-A-L for me, and A-U-R-A-L for you. And if I mouth the words olive juice, you'll think I'm saying I love you, or I guess you won't think anything, since you can't see me. Let's give it a shot. Okay. I screwed up and said, I love you. So I guess we'll just have to test that another time. But no apologies here. 
I started thinking, olive juice? Why in the world would I say olive juice to anyone? When this world does not have enough love in it. There's plenty of olive juice. With super abundance of olive juice. Not enough love. Even if there was a shortage of olive juice, saying the words olive juice wouldn't bring more about. Not, not like love, where you say it and it, it self-actualizes. So, no more of those tricks or games, all of you. Olive juice sayers, just go with love and more love and don't look back. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's try it again. Okay, that time I did say olive juice. <laughs> what can I say? I just wasn't feeling the love, people. I'm sorry. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.